Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. It's the day after the election. There's big news. We've got a lot to cover in the program today. I want to get into the takeaways from yesterday's election. There's still a few results that are not in yet, but we're seeing some really significant trends that I, you know, make me very optimistic. I'll share that with you in just a moment. And also, is the Republican Party focusing most of their efforts, or many of their efforts, to put Trump or DeSantis or, you know, some mini-me Trump in a position to steal the 2024 election? We'll get into that. And P.E. Moskowitz will be with us. Is the antidepressant industry about to hit a reckoning? You know, we went through this with Valium and those benzo drugs back in the 60s, Mother's Little Helper, and then discovered, whoa... And then the same thing with, you know, opiates and uh, Purdue Pharma back in the 90s and early 2000s. And then it was like, oh, no. Well, we'll talk about antidepressants today. But I want to start with the election results. I think that there's two in particular that I want to flag for you that I think are, 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 are fascinating. Uh, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, you know, the top line story that you're hearing from all the news reports is that, you know, Fetterman won the Democratic primary. What they're not telling you is that the guy he was running against, Connor Lamb, who is a state rep or a uh, U.S. Uh, member of the U.S. House of Representatives representing Pennsylvania, was the, shall we say, corporate Democratic candidate. And Fetterman ran as not being that. And as a result of that, this massive health insurance super PAC that does not want Medicare for all uh, weighed in heavily on behalf of Connor Lamb and attacking John Fetterman. And yet, he won in every single county. So, I mean, that's, that's in the entire state of Pennsylvania, it's pretty mind-boggling. People want progressives, increasingly. They're over it with the old, you know, get along, go along. In fact, one of the ways that Fetterman won was by calling Connor Lamb the Joe Manchin of Pennsylvania. Uh, also in Pennsylvania, Representative Summer Lee, 
is narrowly ahead now, right now of uh, union at avoidance lawyer Steve Irwin. Now, this is a guy who advises companies on how to bust unions. He's a Democrat. He's running in the primary. And he had $3.4 million spent against Representative Summer Lee and, you know, on behalf of presumably Steve Irwin by APAC. We've got Israel in the United States, in, in our elections, trying to swing our elections. And uh, still, you know, it looks like, you know, there's still some votes out in that particular race, but it looks like the progressive is going to win. Um, at the end of the day, the top of the ticket, the uh, governor's race, is going to be Josh Shapiro. He's right now the attorney general, and he's very popular. He prosecuted, and he's very progressive. He, pop, he prosecuted a major pipeline company, a huge conglomerate. He, uh, he prosecuted a student debt bank for the way that they've been treating students. He prosecuted the Catholic Church. Uh, he's he's going to be facing Doug Mastriano, state senator, Republican state senator Doug Mastriano, uh, who is actually there on January 6th. He's, he's, he's going to be facing a real nutcase, uh, you know, a genuine insurrectionist. Uh, now, here in Oregon, it gets really fascinating. The uh, results are not all in, and, and the problem here is that uh, in... in um, Oh, what's the Clackamas County, Clackamas County, which is, you know, uh, about half of uh, one of our, hang on just a minute, let me get the details on this. Clackamas County is, there we go, 45, it's home to 45% of the, uh, there's been redistricting here in Oregon, and so the districts aren't quite the same. Schrader is running partly in his old district and partly in a new district, essentially. And about 45% of that vote is Clackamas County. And Clackamas County screwed up and printed the wrong um, uh, codes for the scanners to read on the ballots. And so there's 40, roughly 40,000 ballots that have to be recoded by hand and then run through the scanning machines again. But so that said, so far... Uh, Jamie McLeod Skinner is leading Kurt Schrader 61 to 39. Kurt Schrader, you'll recall, well, Jamie McLeod Skinner has been on this program. Kurt Schrader is the guy that um, uh, voted, uh, led the opposition in the House of Representatives among Democrats against Build Back Better. He's the guy whose vote helped stop Democrats from uh, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Um, again, uh, McLeod Skinner had been running around the state calling, calling him, uh, you know, calling Kurt Schrader the Joe Manchin of Oregon or the Joe Manchin of the House of Representatives. And, you know, that's a big deal. Not to mention the fact that Big Pharma, Big Pharma Front Group spent $1.1 million pushing Kurt Schrader and he got an $800,000 boost from a pro-Israel super PAC that uh, you know, goes through a front name, Mainstream Democrats PAC. And still, Jamie McLeod Skinner looks like she's going to win. Now, like I said, there's a huge if Clackamas County votes haven't been counted yet. Also here in Oregon, in the 6th District, State Representative and Andrea Salinas appears to have beaten Carrick Flynn. This was a fascinating study. Uh, Carrick Flynn, nobody knew who this guy was. He just came out of nowhere. 
But this Bitcoin billionaire put $13 million into, into a race for a single new district in the House of Representatives. That's massive. And uh, this is the so-called Protect Our Future PAC. It's bankrolled by this cryptocurrency billionaire, Sam Bankman-Fried. And uh, the other PAC that was on the side of uh, Carrick Flynn was run by Robbie Mook, uh, the guy who was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. It's called the House Majority PAC. Um, you know, again, supporting corporate Democrats over progressives. It's pretty amazing. There was a new NBC News poll that said nearly two-thirds of the party's voters, of Democratic voters, want to vote for a candidate, quote, this is from the, from the poll, quote, who proposes larger scale policies that cost more and might be harder to pass into law, but could bring major change on the issues of health care, climate change, the cost of college, and economic opportunity. In other words, the Sanders-Warren platform essentially is winning big. In North Carolina, uh, Representative Ted Budd, this is for the, on the Republican side, uh, who was backed by both Donald Trump and the, the right-wing billionaires who run the, Ted, the Club for Growth, uh, beat the former, uh, quote, reasonable Republican governor, Pat McCrory, 59 to 25. So the primary voters are all in on crazy. They're going to go up against uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley, who won a, uh, the Democratic primary with 81% of the vote. Nobody was running against her. John Fetterman, of course, has defeated Connor Lamb 59 to 26, as I mentioned. You know, John Fetterman calling Connor Lamb the Joe Manchin of, of, uh, for Pennsylvania. Uh, State Senator Chuck Edwards ended Madison Cawthorn's, um, shall we say, bizarre career, 33-32. And uh, so uh, Chuck Edwards, the Republican Edwards, is going to go up against Buncombe County Commissioner J Jasmine Beach Ferreira, who won the Democratic primary with 60% and is a progressive. In Pennsylvania, it's uh, down to the down to the wire between uh, Mehmet Oz and David McCormick. Oz, of course, uh, uh, endorsed by Trump. McCormick sucking up to Trump. So we'll see how, how it all goes, how it all shakes out. I think this is absolutely fascinating. So uh, what are your thoughts on uh, how this is leading? I'm finding it absolutely fascinating that there is this very clear bifurcation happening in American politics. The middle is getting smaller and smaller, the so-called middle. Now, prior to the Reagan era, the middle in American politics was, you know, people like my dad. I mean, you know, it's uh, both on the Democratic and Republican sides. You know, people who were, you know, kind of okay with the status quo, you know, would have liked to see progress in some areas. My, my dad was particularly concerned about race in America. He was an advocate for, I, he was an advocate for forced busing, actually, in the 70s. I mean, he was an outlier in the, in the Republican Party in that regard. You know, I've told the story before about when our neighbor, girl who lived next door, wanted to marry a black man, and her father refused to attend the wedding, and my father walked her down the aisle. That was the middle in America for a long time. Whether, you, whether they call themselves Republicans or Democrats, they were just, you know, relatively decent people. And, and of all races, I mean, but, but trying, to, trying to just kind of move forward step by step. And 
And the people on the far right, that was the John Birch Society. Those are the people who wanted to, you know, impeach Earl Warren and roll back Brown versus Board. And the people on the far left were the people who thought, you know, maybe we should try communism here or Marxism or, you know, let's all let's all get in bed with Fidel Castro. And they were, you know, fairly small groups. What has happened over the last 40 years, in my opinion, and I don't know, maybe this should become a separate rant that I should write one of these days. Um, but what has happened, in my opinion, over the last 40 years, I'd love to get your take on this um, when I pick up your calls in just a second. What it appears has happened to me is that that middle space that used to be occupied by people who were, you know, just incrementally trying to improve the country, that has been taken over by giant corporations and by politicians funded by foreign governments. Whether it's politicians like, you know, we saw the two of the three races I described this morning heavily funded by Israel or whether it's politicians on the right who are being heavily funded by Saudi Arabia or by Russia. You know, we saw this in 2016 with the Trump campaign. And, and, and of course, you know, the, the, the whole corporate thing, that's now the middle, right? The, we now refer to politicians who are, you know, wholly owned divisions of big pharma or of the weapons industry or of the of the, uh, the big ag industry or hospitals and insurance or whatever. We refer to them as moderates or centrists. They're not. They're really, they're really, uh, you know, they should be wearing NASCAR patches. They're representatives of corporate America. And as a consequence, we've, we've had this populist split that has come away from the middle, that is splitting away from the middle. And the populists who want to turn America into a white ethno state on the right, the Republicans, um, you know, they're growing in number. And Donald Trump, of course, and his whole Trumpy movement represents them and all the Trump humpers following him, the whole maggot movement. And on the left, it's a movement toward, you know, back to the traditional values of the United States, back toward labor unions, back toward environmentalism. Uh, back toward uh, regulation to protect consumers, you know, safety regulations, um, you know, uh, protecting our food, protecting our pharmaceuticals, um, providing Americans uh, with economic choices, uh, lowering the prices of drugs, Medicare for all, that kind of stuff. They're both populist movements because the so-called center is no longer responding to the people. The so-called, you know, the, the vast majority of Americans think we should have college without debt. <laughs> that ain't happening. The vast majority of Americans think we should have reasonably priced health care. Well, that ain't happening. Or reasonably priced pharmaceuticals. That ain't happening. I mean, you know, we just, we get you know, reasonably priced internet access, for, for goodness sake. Uh, none of these things are happening. So, you know, the middle is collapsing, or the middle has rigidified, shall we say. But there's these two trends happening on the outside on the left and the right, and, the, and, and I think, frankly, the big question, and it's going to have to do with whether America is going to survive, frankly, for lack of a better phrase, is which of those two extremes is going to end up taking over, because I think the middle is gone. This middle that was created by, by you know, a series of Supreme Court decisions that allowed politicians to be owned by corporations, increasingly, it ain't working. Although, I, I, which is not to diminish the fact that it's still probably, you know, 95% of the Republican Party and 40, 45% of the Democratic Party. So, you know, your thoughts on that, too.
Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Lisa in Van Nuys, California. Hey, Lisa, what's on your mind today? Hey, I wanted to ask you about, there was an article yesterday in yesterday's New York Times about how the Democrats tried to redraw the map in New York, and the court struck it down. Republicans are doing this all over the country and getting away with it. Yeah, Ohio most uh, noticeably, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, Democrats try that, and they get slapped down. I mean, what, what is this? Was this a Trump judge, you know? No, I, no, it was, it, was, it. it was the state Supreme Court that knocked it down in, in um, New York, and I, I believe all of the people on the state Supreme Court are, appoint, are Democratic appointees. Um, the, court, oh, okay. the court just said, you know, the Constitution says you can't gerrymander like crazy, and so we're going to prevent you from doing it. The same thing happened in Ohio, although it was a federal court. It wasn't, I, I believe it was a federal court. Actually, I may be wrong on that. It, it might have been the state Supreme Court in Ohio as well. But the difference is that in Ohio, the Republicans said, we're just going to ignore the court. And we're going to go ahead with this, you know, using our maps for the primaries and just, you know, tough luck, guys. Uh, whereas in New York, the Democrats said, okay, if that's what the Supreme Court says, then we'll go back to the drawing board. So the Democrats are playing by the rules. The Republicans aren't. Surprise, surprise. Shock, shock. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I can't, I don't think we can blame the Democrats for this. Um, there is, you know, there is a larger question. Uh, you have uh, about, a, uh, I think it's a little short of a dozen. I think there's seven or eight, maybe nine um, Democratic states that have replaced they're gerrymandering, uh, you know, no longer are they doing their gerrymandering or their, say, redistricting is the fancy word. Um, uh, through their legislatures, they've uh, appointed special nonpartisan, apolitical, uh, you know, uh, math wonk uh, commissions to draw the districts so that they reflect population rather than demographics or rather than politics. In other words, so that the politicians aren't picking their voters, the voters are picking their politicians. And, and there are yeah. some people in the party who are saying, you know, it's a noble thing, but we shouldn't have gone ahead and done that. Because, you know, if California had gerrymandered within the law, I mean, if they had gerrymandered just to the extent that the states that are not being contested right now, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, Texas, if they had gerrymandered like those states, there would probably be two or three fewer Republican members of the House of Representatives coming out of California. But instead, California just did it honestly. 
So I think this is going to be a big debate, Lisa, in the Democratic Party going forward. I mean, it's going to be another 10 years before it comes up. But, sure. um, you know, sure. it's it's an interesting one. It's a real interesting one. So that's what I know yeah. about that. And also one more thing, if I could say really quickly, sure. I think that Democrats need to frame the abortion issue as an economic one. Because, you know, they keep saying it's the economy, stupid. Yeah. If women are forced to have more children, that's going to affect them. They're not going to be able to work. They're, you know. I think this is an issue that every woman understands, Lisa. But the minute that Democrats start speaking of it explicitly in those terms, although they do, I mean, you know, but if they were to front and center it, then the Republicans would be saying, oh, you're killing babies for money, huh? I mean, you know, it, 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 it could be a two-edged sword. But I think your point, is, your point is well taken, and I, and I don't think that there's very many women in America who don't understand that. So it, it's probably just as well that it doesn't need to be the center of the campaign. Lisa, I really think, you know, bodily autonomy is the important thing. Lisa, thank you for the call. Cliff in Santa Clarita, California. Hey, Cliff, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. Hey. I usually call on Fridays, but uh, I've had this thought. I want, I've been thinking about it. I just wanted to share. I call it selective racism. You know, we see racism out in the open now. You know, Trump opened the closet door and made it okay for these racists to come out and express themselves. But when there's an African-American that they can use for their agenda, suddenly they put their racist views to the side. You're talking about uh, Kathy, uh, what's her name in Pennsylvania? Well, yeah, a, a less, a lower profile one, but you know, Clarence Thomas, Her Herschel Walker, Jim Scott. Um, yeah. It, well, yeah, I mean, it's just so disingenuous and phony. You know, it's just. Well, I don't I, I don't think that you can you can say that. Uh, I mean, that 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 suggests Cliff that all all black people should be Democrats, and and uh, I, you know, I don't think either you or I as a couple of white guys could, you know, reasonably should be even having that conversation. I mean, yeah, uh, that's not really where I stand. You know, when you brought up Tim Scott, I wasn't really in agreement, but he, yeah. he got elected. So he yeah. ran for office and got elected. But, you know, the, the way they can use a Clarence Thomas or prop up a Herschel Walker, I don't know, it just... I think I Herschel Walker, I, you know, I, I think Trump's equation there, the reason that he endorsed Herschel Walker was because Herschel Walker is a big name, a big name in Georgia. And, and, and he was black, yeah. and, and there's a large black population in Georgia, so, so Trump figured that, A, they could peel off part of the black population, and B, there's the great sure. name recognition. And it may work out for him. I mean, you know, we'll see. I, I doubt it. He's, I doubt it, because Herschel very Walker... Very unqualified. Oh, and, 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 he, and he's apparently a wife beater. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, how is that going to help? Well, maybe it will help him with the Republicans. There's a, there's a lot of Republican wife beaters out there running for office. It's, uh, it's just mind-boggling. Cliff, thanks a lot for the call. Helping you win the water cooler wars right here. Are you feeling optimistic about these election results that we just saw? Or do you think that, you know, some of these are the exceptions to the rule? What are your thoughts? I wanted to share this one particular story with you. I, I find it absolutely fascinating. And uh, it's about the Lincoln Project and Steve Schmidt. Steve Schmidt, of course, was, you know, he's been a lifelong Republican. He's a Republican strategist. He's a very smart guy. 
and was the guy who ran the John McCain campaign back in, what year was that, 2008, I think. And, you know, McCain and, and uh, Sarah Palin, sadly, he listened to Bill Kristol. And he has now become probably one of the most outspoken Republicans about the rise of fascism within the GOP and how bad it is and how bad it could get and where it could go and all that sort of thing. Um, and, and, you know, the this, this serious danger, frankly, that the Republican Party is representing to the United States. Um, he, he, he's just come right out and said it. He's, he's calling for Rupert Murdoch to be stripped of his U.S. citizenship. Now, I don't know if that would mean that he could no longer own the Fox network. I don't know if his son Lachlan, who is actually the guy, I mean, Rupert's like 81 or something, and Lachlan is, or no, he's 91, excuse me, and Lachlan is pretty much running the, uh, the empire now. Whether he's a U.S. citizen or a dual citizen or an Australian citizen, I don't know. But Steve Schmidt wants, metaphorically, blood. He, he wants action. Uh, he, the uh, January 6th committee will prove a massive conspiracy, he tweeted last night. And he said that conspiracy will likely involve Fox News hosts and personalities. Rupert Murdoch is responsible for what happens on Fox News, which has long claimed in federal court that it is not news but entertainment. Now, in that regard, Steve Schmidt is absolutely right. Fox News, on a couple of occasions, when they've been called on things, you know, like lying about voting machines, for example, um, you know, where there's actually been a lawsuit and somebody's had to take a deposition, they go into court and they say, we're not news. We, we don't have to tell the news. There's no law that says that. Just because we say news in our name, there's nothing in law that identifies the word news. News is just another dimension of entertainment. And we do entertainment, and so we say whatever we want to say. So that's the position that Fox News has taken. So then Schmidt goes on to say, uh, Rupert Murdoch is not a birthright citizen like Barack Obama, which is kind of a tip of the hat to, to the, uh, uh, the Republicans who were unwilling, like John McCain, who were unwilling to go along with uh, Sarah Palin and, well, really Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump was the godfather of the birther, birther movement and, uh, you know, rode it to political fame for eight years. So anyhow, uh, he says, uh, Murdoch is not a birthright citizen like Barack Obama. He is a naturalized citizen. Though it happens rarely, there is a denaturalization process that can lead to revocation of U.S. citizenship and removal from the country. Now, I'm not sure if Murdoch is still living in the country or if he's gone back to Australia. I've, I've heard both. But uh, interesting stuff. I, you know, I'm, it's not going to happen. Um, but the fact that the guy who ran John McCain's campaign, that that high-profile Republican would be speaking like this, I think it's consequential. So if we have some open lines here. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the politics of the day, on where this is all going, on how these primaries are shaking out, and what do you think is going to happen in the fall? Tom in Huntington Beach, California. Hey, Tom, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Hey, thank you, sir. I thought I'd uh, mention something about the whole baby formula thing since Elise Stefanik, Bobart, Tucker Carlson, Majority Taylor Green, whatever her name is, they're all jumping on this wagon saying, oh, they're taking, they're going with the, they're taking pallets and pallets of 
baby food and feeding, you know, at the border, feeding the babies. Mm-hmm. And um, the key is when you look at the numbers, there's only 750 to 1,000 infants in ICE custody. Right. And there's three and a half to 3.7 million babies born approximately every year in America. Right. And a, and a lot of those babies, by the way, in ICE custody are being breastfed. Uh, it's not yeah, like ICE but, has been ordering pallets of, of Similac. It's, you know, they've had st- a, a, a warehouse full of it all along. That's, that, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, when she talks about pallets, she's lying through her teeth. Yeah, but the big key of it is this, is when you say, okay, if we took all that food from those babies at the border, it only adds one three thousandth by volume to each American baby this year, which means that's like one bottle out of a year, if that, probably a half a bottle or a tenth of a spoon of powder formula, right? Mm -hmm. So... It does them neither good nor bad to, to for us to feed those babies. But to go along with that hateful rhetoric saying, oh, yeah, we should let them starve, you know, Tucker Carlson and stuff. And it's like even if you let them starve, it wouldn't bring up all the American babies and it wouldn't harm them to feed them. So all it seems like you're looking for is an excuse to starve a thousand infants when you show them the volume numbers. I think we need to call out these crazy things they say with with just how ridiculous it is and go, okay, let's go with your idea. Let's divide it all up, figure it all out, and go, gee, you're adding this much to each baby. Is that hurting them or harming them? It's not even one calorie. Yeah. Well, it's an excellent point, Cliff. Uh, Or, excuse me, Tom, you're, you're, you're being rational here and scientific and thoughtful. And uh, yeah. that's that's not what Marjorie Taylor Greene is trying to do. What she's trying to do is take a a story out of the headlines, um, right. which is nonpartisan. It has to do with, uh, I mean, you could make it partisan, I suppose, if you want to talk about monopolies or whatnot, or or the FDA not being allowed to inspect food factories because you know uh, back in the day, uh, uh, which always oh, Dupont. DuPont claimed that they had a Fourth Amendment right to privacy, and so inspectors have to announce themselves, and they have to make appointments before they can come. And that's the state of things now. This happened about 15 years ago, and the Supreme Court went along with it. Um, So, you know, I I suppose you could make a political, but basically what Marjorie Taylor Greene is trying to do is rip a headline from 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 the top of the newspaper and tie it to immigration so that she can demagogue on immigration. That's all she's trying to do. Yeah, creating a moral panic. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Which, which is, which is the only thing that these guys have left. I mean, you know, when your when your agenda is to raise taxes on working people and end Social Security and Medicare, which is now the official Republican Party's agenda, you've got a problem. And how do you fill that problem? Well, you know, you lie to people and you freak out people about brown people and you crank up the racists and and uh, you know you endorsed stochastic terrorism. That's what that's what happens. Tom, thanks a lot for the call. And thanks for listening to KPFK. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. 
With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Question. Fascinating question. Are Republican primary voters explicitly trying to put Donald Trump or a mini-me Donald Trump? You know, I'm increasingly thinking that the, that the Republican ticket in uh, 2024 is going to have uh, either, I used to think probably Rick Scott, but now I'm thinking probably Ron DeSantis at its head. And the number two person will be, Ron, will be uh, Donald Trump Jr., I just, you know, I think Trump himself, I don't think he wants the work. Uh, he loves the adulation. If his son was on the, on the ticket, he could travel around with them. He could do rallies. He could, you know, but he doesn't, he just doesn't like the work of being president or vice president or anything like that. So I'm guessing that that's what we're going to see. But in any case, what we're seeing uh, all around the country are people who are, you know, like, like David McCormick, uh, like J.D. Vance, um, who are, you know, uh, the birther equivalent. I mean, they're, they're truthers. They're, they're election truthers. They're out there saying, oh, no, 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 Donald Trump didn't lose the election. It was stolen, you know, quack, quack, quack. And, and then they're going to the next step, which is trying to pack election boards, trying to change election rules. Uh, the Republican Party is now trying to recruit 10,000 people to show up in many states, armed with weapons in polling places to make sure that the wrong people aren't voting. And you and I both know what they mean when they talk about the wrong people. Um, so we've, and, and uh, the Secretary of State's races, well, with, uh, yeah, I mean, in Mastriano in, in uh, Pennsylvania, you've got a, a guy running for governor who has come right out and said, I'm the guy who will appoint the Secretary of State. I'm gonna make sure that I get a Secretary of State who's perfectly willing to ignore the result of the vote. And we will, we will make sure that, you know, whatever Republican is on the ticket in 2024 gets the Electoral College votes of Pennsylvania, regardless of how the election goes. And he's not the only one. There are Republican politicians like this who are saying this kind of thing literally all over the United States. They're showing up in very large numbers in places like Arizona and Wisconsin and Michigan because the, these swing states and Florida and, and Texas, these swing states are being heavily churned by the Republican Party and by the right-wing billionaires who fund the Republican Party. 
And, and, and it's not just happening at the federal level. It's not just happening with these federal candidates like, you know, governor and, well, the governor's not a federal candidate, but, you know, U.S. senator. Um, it is happening at the state level. And it's not just happening at the high, at the top of the state level. Things like governor and, and uh, secretary of state and attorney general and things like that. It's happening even one step down from that at the, local, at the, at the, at the more local level with members of the House of Representatives for each one of these states, or assembly as, as it may be called, and for the state Senate, um, for local election boards, for county commissioners. In fact, this is where one of the most aggressive efforts has been being put forward right now by some of the right-wing billionaires who fund the Republican Party through a bunch of their front groups, is getting election commissions, uh, school boards, I mean, all this hyper-local stuff trying to get people on these on these commissions and on these boards who are basically openly fascist because we've got a large tragically a very large fascist fascist movement here in the United States so a lot on the table here a lot to discuss our elections our primaries the fate and future of the of the democracy and the Republican party how do we stop stochastic terrorism what do we do about the terrorism what will the republicans do about it Jerry in Richton Park, Illinois. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today? Tom, how you doing? Good. I'm from Richton Park, which is right outside Chicago. Mm-hmm. I used to be president of the uh, union that represented all of the uh, rapid transit operators in Chicago. Very I retired cool. from that. And a big, big fan of labor. And I'm a big, big fan of Tom Hartman also. Okay. Thank you. I don't call in a lot because I just listen. Thank you, Jerry. I listen to what you're talking about. It's very good. But one thing I disagree with you on, though, is progressive and moderate Democrats. Not that we don't have them. We do have them. And they both should express what they feel. But this is not a time for them to fight each other. We don't. This is not a time. Let's get this cancer out. And then we work on that. But. I'm very concerned when we when we place um, a moderate versus a progressive because it's just not good. We if don't they, want, we don't need people. If, if the moderates were more able to win elections than the progressives, or it was fifty fifty, I would agree with you and and totally get what you're saying. But what we're finding increasingly all across the United States, and this is what that that poll that I cited shows is that Democratic voters and generally American voters want action. They want progressive action. They want something done about medical costs. They want something done about student debt. They want something done about global warming. And the so-called moderate Democrats are the ones, you know, who are blocking those efforts. The, the Joe Manchins, the, the Kurt Schraders of the world, um, you know, Kurt Schrader blocked the ability of, of, of uh, Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Joe Manchin blocked voting rights and, and, and blocked Build Back Better, you know, and doing anything about well, that's, green stuff. That's true. That's true. Joe Manchin did. I don't consider Joe Manchin a Democrat at all. What? And he but, never but was. But when you talk about but, moderate but Democrats, he, he's right. He's, you, he's the poster boy. But I know that if you got, there are several things that would be passed. If you had, if this guy wasn't there, you had another Democrat there. Yeah. And with the moderate Democrats you have and the progressive Democrats you have, we would get a lot done. Yeah. Well, if, 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 maybe and it's I a matter of terms here, Jerry. Yeah, it probably is. 
Because I mean, I mean there, there are there are so-called moderate Dems who are yeah indebted to certain industries. I mean, you know, the the, the Steve Coons of the of the world, and and uh, you know, uh, there's a few, I don't want to you know start naming names actually, but you know, there, there, there's some of these Democrats who are, uh, but you know, they're not they're not openly trying to sabotage a progressive agenda. They're willing to go along with a progressive agenda more often than not. Um, but the ones, the ones who have my ire, the ones who I want to see primaried, um, and, and for the good of the party and for the good of the country, are the ones who are blocking any forward progress. Because when you look at these opinion polls that show that 74% of Americans think that Joe Biden is not moving in the right direction, he's not moving the country in the right direction, and you drill down and ask them why, it's because he wasn't able to get Build Back Better passed. He wasn't able to get voting rights passed. And, and who's, who blocked that? Well, obviously, every single Republican in Congress, but also Manchin and Cinema, the so-called moderate right, Democrats. Right. Manchin and Cinema, and you throw them into moderate. You know, and I think that I've been considered a moderate uh, Democrat. But all the things that you talk about that progressive do, I'm in favor of 80% of it. Yeah. You know, when it comes to... Uh, uh, um, you know, just about everything you do when you're talking about moderate, I, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in favor of it. So most Democrats, period, are in favor of it. But we got to get ourselves in position so that we can make these things happen. But if we get into even with these people, we know we got to bring people on in, in this upcoming election so that we don't have to depend on people like. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Manchin. And, uh, yeah, and Manchin and, yeah. and Cinema. You yeah, know, I'm, I'm with you, Jerry. What we got to do. I'm oh. with you. And, I, and it's why, more often than not, when I'm referring to these people, instead of calling them moderate Democrats, I call them corporate Democrats, because th that's where I think the problem is in our party. Jerry, thank you. Thanks for a thoughtful conversation. I appreciate it. It's the place where smart people get their news. So in the course of, of my life, <laughs> my years on this planet, I've seen America go through basically three phases of widespread, heavily popularized, heavily promoted drug use uh, that was all legal. I remember in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, I think it was around the time my youngest brother was born, um, my mother was on Valium for a while. In fact, in 1965, the Rolling Stones did a song about this called Mother's Little Helper. It was so widespread. Uh, housewives all across America were taking Valium. Then they learned that the benzodiazepine drugs, which uh, Valium was the earliest one, um, can cause addiction and all kinds of weird problems. And so we got rid of that. And then, uh, you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 years ago, I don't recall how long ago it was, one of my old friends from high school, his name was Bill, um, uh, was injured, got addicted to OxyContin, ended up overdosing, and he's dead now. Um, we figured out, oh, well, that wasn't such a great idea, passing OxyContin out to everybody and other kinds of narcotics, and so we pulled back from that. And then back seven, eight years ago, when, when my wife, Louise, got, you know, had breast cancer and um, had surgery and, and, and chemo and, the, and went through as a consequence of the drug she was taking to suppress estrogen, was going through just a wild case of hot flashes, they put her on an SSRI drug, which are typically used as antidepressants, you know, like Prozac kind of drugs. This was a super low dose. It was just intended to treat hot flashes. And she was on it for about a year. And when she went off for weeks, she was getting electric shocks in her brain and just all kinds of wild symptoms. And 
I've been wondering ever since that happened, and that, like I said, that was years ago. You know, when when is the opiate, uh, when is the Valium reckoning coming for SSRI drugs? Because it sure did not look like a good thing to me. Well, P.E. Moskowitz is on the line with us. P.E. is a writer of Mental Health, a newsletter about your broken brain, a lecturer who taught college classes, the author of two books with a third in process, and uh, the co-founder of the Media Collaborative Study Hall. Moskowitz.xyz is their website, M-O-S-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Uh, the, uh, and their Twitter handle is underscore P-E-M underscore P-E-M, uh, Pem-Pem. P. Moskowitz, welcome to the program. You have been writing about this issue um, and you know, you're a contributor to The Nation magazine and, and others. Um, and this piece, Breaking Off My Chemical Romance, tell me, tell me what's going on here with, with SSRIs, these selective serotonin re reuptake inhibitor drugs that are supposed to cure depression. Yes, yeah, so I've been interested in these drugs for a while because, uh, you know, like millions upon millions of Americans, I've struggled with mental health for a large part of my life and um, was kind of resistant to medication for a long time. And then, uh, you know, under the recommendation of a psychiatrist uh, one year, just decided to try an, an SSRI or an SNRI, which is a, a similar class of drug. Um, and, you know, she gave me basically no information about it. She was like, you know, these are good drugs and there won't really be any side effects. The side effects are rare. Of course, that turned out to not be true. I, uh, you know, gained a bunch of weight on the drug. I uh, had all these kinds of weird uh, other side effects. Um, and then trying to get off the drug, uh, as you talked about with your wife, yeah, I had these horrible brain zaps. I, um, you know, felt more depressed and anxious than ever. And it felt strange that no one had told me about any of this. And so I started looking more into it and realizing that, you know, thousands of people online, uh, every time I would tweet about something like this, you know, dozens of people would be in my direct messages saying this happened to me too, and, and no one is talking about it. Uh, so I, I wanted to start looking into the research and uh, the the kind of general consensus amongst scientists and psychiatrists uh, about these drugs and, and seeing if the story is as rosy as, as we've made it out to be, which it turns out, obviously, it's not. So are you know, the symptoms that you had and that Louise had, and I'm telling this story with her permission, by the way, um, uh, of, of these brain zaps, I mean, I, I've never experienced that, but she was describing it to me. I, mean, I watched it happen, I mean, from the outside. And uh, it, it, it seemed like she was getting like little miniature explosions inside her brain that were sometimes accompanied by sparks and colors and, 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 and often by wild emotional swings. Is, th is this the kind of thing that is normal for people who are trying to withdraw from these drugs? Or is this, uh, are you guys outliers? Uh, no, it's pretty normal. Uh, the, the prescription drug industry and the, the research they fund suggests that, um, you know, only if a small percentage of people really experience SSRI withdrawal. Uh, but more independent research shows that up to 50% of people uh, experience these longer term effects and have a really hard time getting off the drugs. And you know that make that just makes logical sense. For some reason, antidepressants were seen as as somehow different than any other drug. You know, and I'm not anti-drug, but we should think of drugs as drugs. Um, and so, you know, if you take 
a Valium every day, if you take uh, uh, even drinking coffee every day, you expect you know your brain to adapt to it. And so when you get off of it, uh, you experience withdrawal effects, even if it's just drinking coffee. So why would these drugs be any different? And for so long, we've been taught that they somehow are different, that, that, that there wouldn't be withdrawal somehow. Um, but now we're you know starting to discover that the withdrawals can be really horrible, and they are extremely, extremely common. Now, I, I think it's really important just to point out at this point that um, these, these, this category of drugs or this class of drugs can slightly flatten affect. Um, there's an upside and downside of that, affect being you know, your, the intensity of the emotions that you feel and that you express. Um, the, the downside of it is uh, you know, people like Dr. Peter Bregan who are out there saying that uh, you know, this huge number of school shooters were on these drugs. I think the jury is still out on that. It's speculative. But the upside is that for people who are struggling over the short term with, you know, some horrible emotional crisis, you know, uh, their partner just died, you know, or, you know, terrible things have happened in their lives. Sometimes it's useful to soften our emotions for a little while and get through something, I, I suppose, is the argument. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I've also seen numerous studies suggesting that, generally speaking, the results of these drugs in terms of dealing with psychological illnesses are, for many people, indistinguishable from those of placebos. Now, that said, clearly these drugs do help some people, and I'm not saying that they should be pulled off the market or anything like that. Um, it seems to me like, like we should be looking at them the same way we look at Valium and Oxycontin, which are still on the marketplace. Uh, what say you? You've done the uh, much deeper dive of, uh, on the research on this than I have. Yes. Yeah, so um, back, you know, about 20 years ago, uh, Irving Kirsch, who uh, directs the placebo studies program at Harvard, so he's not like a, a kook or like some kind of fringe scientist. He's at Harvard University. Uh, started looking into this and uh, uh, using Freedom of Information Act requests to to get the unpublished studies about SSRIs and SNRIs, uh, because prescription drug, the prescription drug industry usually only publishes the ones that show positive results. Uh, and what he found when you compare all those studies is that the difference between uh, an SS, someone on an SSRI uh, versus someone who's just taking a placebo is extremely negligible. And and his research proved to be extremely controversial. There was all this kind of backlash to it. Obviously, the industry was very upset. But there was just recently, in the last month or so, a humongous study released. Uh, tens upon tens of thousands of people were, were in this study. Um, and it found that over a period of a few years, uh, there was still no difference in the quality of life of people who had been taking antidepressants and who uh, identified with having depression and people who weren't taking antidepressants and who also identified with having depression. So, uh, yeah, I'm not suggesting that these drugs work for no one, but uh, it seems like they've been 
oversold yet in the same way that Oxycontin and, and these other drugs have as kind of a, a miracle cure for Oxycontin was for physical pain. This is for mental pain. And they're kind of just doled out. If you go to a, a primary care doctor, uh, they're just kind of doled out as soon as you say you're struggling with depression or anxiety or just grief because someone in your family died or whatever. Uh, and, and no one is really thinking about the long-term consequences of that or whether they can they will actually be helpful. 70% of prescriptions of antidepressants come from primary care doctors, not psychiatrists. So the vast majority of people are going in, getting one appointment, uh, seeing, seeing a primary care doctor who doesn't even specialize in mental health, getting put on these drugs. Uh, they may or may not help, and then they have to deal with all these side effects. So yeah. I don't want to say no one should take them, but I do think that they're extremely overprescribed. Yeah, I, I, I think we're on the verge of a third great cycle in my lifetime. You know, the Valium one, the opiate one, and now the SSRI one. We'll see, though. Uh, they've got a, a, a multi-billion dollar industry behind them. P.E. Moskowitz, uh, writer of Mental Health, a newsletter about your broken brain. Moskowitz, M-O-S-K-O-W-I-T-Z dot X-Y-Z on the internet. P.E., thanks a lot for dropping by. It's great talking to you. Thank you. Today in the Tom Hartman University Book Club, we're reading from Johan Hari's Lost Connections, uncovering the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions. He starts out talking about how he had been on antidepressants for most of his life, from his teenage years into his 30s. And then he says, then when I was 31 years old, I found myself chemically naked for the first time in my adult life. For almost a decade, I had been ignoring my therapist's gentle reminders that I was still depressed despite my drugs. It was only after a crisis in my life, when I felt unequivocally terrible and couldn't shake it off, that I decided to listen to him. What I had been trying for so long wasn't, it seemed, working. And so when I flushed away my final packs of Paxil, I found these mysteries waiting for me, like children on a train platform waiting to be collected, trying to catch my eye. Why was I still depressed? Why were there so many people like me? And I realized there was a third mystery hanging over all of it. Could something other than bad brain chemistry have been causing depression and anxiety in me and in so many people all around me? If so, what could it be? Still, I put off looking into it. Once you settle into a story about your pain, you're extremely reluctant to challenge it. It was like a leash I had put on my distress to keep it under control. I feared that if I messed with the story I'd lived with for so long, the pain would be like an unchained animal and would savage me. Over a period of several years, I fell into a pattern. I would begin to research these mysteries by reading scientific papers and talking to some of the scientists who wrote them. But I always backed away because what they said made me feel disoriented and more anxious than I had been at the start. I focused on the work for another book, Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs instead. It sounds ridiculous to say I found it easier to interview hitmen for the Mexican drug cartels than to look into what causes depression and anxiety. But messing with my story about my emotions, what I felt and why I felt it, seemed more dangerous to me than that. And then finally, I decided I couldn't ignore it any longer. So over a period of three years, I went on a journey of over 40,000 miles. I conducted more than 200 interviews across the world with some of the most important social scientists in the world with people who had been through the depths of depression and anxiety, and with people who had recovered. I ended up in all sorts of places I couldn't have guessed at in the beginning. 
An Amish village in Indiana, a Berlin housing project rising up in rebellion, a Brazilian city that had banned advertising, a Baltimore laboratory taking people back through their traumas in a totally unexpected way. What I learned forced me to radically revise my story, my story about myself, my story about the distress spreading like tar over our culture. I want to flag up right at the start two things that shape the language I'm going to use through all of this book. I'm reading from the introduction. Both were surprising to me. I was told by my doctor that I was suffering from both depression and acute anxiety. I had believed those were separate problems, and that is how they were discussed for the 13 years I received medical care for them. But I noticed something odd as I did my research. Everything that causes an increase in depression also causes an increase in anxiety, and the other way around. They rise and fall together. It seemed curious, and I began to understand it only when, in Canada, I sat down with Robert Kohlenberg, a professor of psychology. He, too, once thought that depression and anxiety were different things. But as he studied it for over 20 years now, he discovered, he says, that the data are indicating that they're not distinct. In practice, quote, the diagnoses, particularly depression and anxiety, overlap, end quote. Sometimes one part is more pronounced than the other. You might have panic attacks this month and be crying a lot next month. But the, the idea that they're separate in the way that, say, having pneumonia and having a broken leg are separate is not borne out by the evidence. Robert's side of the argument has been prevailing in the scientific debate recently. In the past few years, the National Institutes of Health, the main body funding medical research in the United States, has stopped funding studies that present depression and anxiety as different diagnoses. They want something more realistic that corresponds to the way people are in actual clinical practice, he explains. I started to see depression and anxiety as like cover versions of the same song by different bands. Depression is a cover version by a downbeat emo band, and anxiety is a cover version by a screaming heavy metal group. But the underlying sheet music is the same. They're not identical, but they're twinned. The second insight comes from something else I learned as I studied these nine causes of depression and anxiety that he writes about in this book. Whenever I wrote about depression and anxiety in the past, I started by explaining one thing. I am not talking about unhappiness. Unhappiness and depression are totally different things. There's nothing more infuriating to a depressed person than to be told to cheer up or to be offered jolly little solutions as if they were merely having a bad week. It feels like being told to cheer up yourself by going out dancing after you've broken both your legs. But as I studied the evidence, I noticed something that I couldn't ignore. The forces that are making us depressed and severely anxious are, at the same time, making even more people unhappy. It turns out that there is a continuum between unhappiness and depression. They're still very different in the same way that losing a finger in a car accident is different from losing an arm and falling over the street is different from falling over the cliff. But they are connected. The book Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Thea in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Thea, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. This is regarding antidepressants. Mm -hmm. I was on Lexapro, which is an SSRI, mm -hmm. and there's fine print that no one ever tells you about. And one is that you could have a toxic liver reaction, and that happened to me. Turned out I had toxic liver damage, which took a year to recover from. Wow. And they say only one out of 100,000 people get this. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's not that rare. But it sure is. I can't take an SSRI ever again. Yeah. I mean, I refuse to try another one. 
Yeah, it sounds and wise. the other thing is they talk about side effects. They should just say effects because the quote-unquote side effects are just strong as the good effects. At least for you. you. Just say these are the effects of the drug. Yeah, because it, it varies in person. for 20 years yeah. until it didn't. Yeah, there you go. But it took me a year to recover, and it was a... And you have to titrate off it really slowly. There's just no way about it. Thea, I need to move along. But thank you for the call, and thank you for sharing your story with us. I do appreciate it. Susan in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hey, Susan, you wanted to share something? Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm well. What's up? I wanted to talk about antidepressants. Mm -hmm. I was on Effexa, which is an SNRI, for 20 years, and I started having issues with it, narrow angles in my eyes, uh, grinding my teeth, and just, I was just miserable from it. So my doctor gave me the advice of cutting it in half. Mm -hmm. Bad idea. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. So I went to my pharmacist. I said, how do you get off this stuff? She says, I'll take it um, an hour later every day and then stop. Well, I did that and I was bedridden for eight months. And the withdrawal is horrendous. I mean, I had brain zaps, I was vomiting, diarrhea every day, shaking. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I went down to 106 pounds. Finally, after eight months, I knew I was going to die, so I figured I better go back on it. And thankfully, I was one of those people who did go back on it and survived, because sometimes you don't. And I went back on it through a group on Facebook who talked me into reinstating, immediately felt better. I was also on clonazepam because the effects of made me jerk. So I took six months to get off that. A year later, I was able to finally fall asleep. And then I just started to attack the effects again. And I did 44 months of opening capsules, counting out the beads, less than 10% a month. And it took me 44 months to get off. Wow. And you were reducing by yeah. 10% every single month, which yeah. would over time down be to, 8, down 9. To, yeah. Down to one bead. And after I got down to one bead, I quit. So it's got little beads in it like the old contact cold capsules used to have? Right. You open the capsule and you make other capsules. You feel like a drug addict. Yeah, <laughs> up I, the totally get it. Capsule. I totally get it. I was a moderator on the Effexa group. We have 7,000 members, and we have some members who didn't make it because it was, it was so horrendous, the withdrawal. They killed themselves. Bizarre. It was wow. bizarre, and we were never warned about this from our doctors that we would go through such an awful thing. Yeah. Susan, I really do think that the, 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 this, is the, this is the opiates for this, this decade. Susan, thank you for the call, and thank you for the, having the courage to share your story with us. Oh, and it's the end of the show, isn't it? So thank you all for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It's not a game. This is our lives. This is our children's lives. This is the future of this republic. This may well be the future of our planet. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.